All rise. The legal show of New Orleans is now in session on WHIV 102.3 FM. Welcome to the radio show that presents a case of equal human rights and social justice for everyone. This hour of legal discussion is brought to you by all those who've come before us in the struggle for justice. It's time to stand together and speak truth to power. Good evening, happy Wednesday, and welcome to the All Rise Legal Show, presented by the Justice and Accountability Center of Louisiana. This is your host for the evening, Savannah Wheeler with JAC, and we have a very special guest tonight. We're speaking with Matthew Westner, JAC's very own program analyst. So in addition to his role at JAC, Matthew's a PhD candidate in criminology. So we'll get to hear about some of his fascinating research on issues of safety and criminal justice and about the importance that data plays in criminal justice reform and in building effective programs to assist those impacted by the system. We'll also learn why there's often a disconnect between the objective facts surrounding crime and safety and the public perception of these issues and why that's important. So stay tuned. You are listening to WHIVLP in New Orleans, 102.3 FM, dedicated to human rights, social justice, and public health. The objective of WHIV is to remove the stigma and shame from those factors that led to the disease's spread. By reserving our airwaves for the voices of the marginalized, for honest dialogue, and for community action, we're working to bring issues of social injustice and human rights into the light. Donate or become an underwriter by emailing info at whivfm.org. My name is Matthew Westner. I am the Programs Analyst for the Justice and Accountability Center in Louisiana. My primary role is collecting information about the programs that we operate and we pursue and using that information to disseminate it to larger audiences. Um, so what that really means is uh, tracking our programming, collecting data, uh, and measuring specifics and particulars within the programs to determine whether or not they're effective, uh, cost-efficient, all that, and to determine whether or not they can be applied on a larger scale. On top of his role with JAC, Matthew's also keeping himself busy with a PhD. Yeah, I'm going to finish my PhD, hopefully, it's tentative, but August of this year. I'm very excited. And what is the focus of Matthew's graduate studies and research? Uh, My PhD is going to be specifically um, in criminology um, at Florida State University. So Florida State University is in Tallahassee. Um, There's a reason why I'm there. Um, It's not an online program. It's a conventional brick-and-mortar program. I attended... Uh, coursework, and then <clears throat> when I was kind of finished with the majority of the coursework, the stuff that required me to be in person, I was able to move back to New Orleans and you know kind of pursue the research component of the program here locally. And so, my, actually, my dissertation, um, all of the data that I collected for it, was collected right here in New Orleans. So, I wanted to know a little bit about Matthew's background and what led him to the study of criminology. It's actually pretty colorful. I will try to give the most truthful account as possible. Um, So I started off as a musical theater and acting major um, at the University of West Florida, which is in Pensacola. Um, I grew up in South Florida, sort of about like 80 miles north of Miami. And um, it was the school that I could go to that was in-state that was furthest away from my parents. Not that I, I just, you know, I was 18 and I just wanted to go somewhere new. I didn't want to go to the university that was in Orlando because every single person from my high school went there. So I just just wanted something different. And I uh, started off there. <clears throat> my first two years were in musical theater, uh, partially funded. And um, I just really didn't do well. Um, I didn't excel. And I think part of it was because my heart wasn't in it anymore. I was really into it in high school and then I just... I don't think I could stomach all of the, the political the political aspect of it. Um, you know, some people are really good at navigating that, and I just don't think it was for me. Um, I still really enjoy that, and it's a big part of my life, but just not in a professional way. So I, I kind of shifted to political science because I felt like, in a way, that was a natural 
that, that was a pathway that many people take. I mean, I've actually talked to a lot of people that were poli science, graduated political science degrees, and many of them started out in acting, which is funny. Uh, law school is the same thing as well. Um, so I think there's something inherently um, similar between the two. Inherent, there's an co inherent connection between the two. Um, at any rate, I graduated my uh, political science degree at the University of West Florida, and I came to New Orleans in 2011 um, when I was accepted into Loyola's criminology program. And um, I didn't really know if I like what I wanted to do with that. I was interested in people. I was always, I'm like, I always. I was always interested in science, but I knew that the hard sciences, so it's like chemistry and biology, were like not exactly the right direction for me. So I was really interested in people and why they behaved in the ways they did. So that it first started off as why do people vote the way they vote? That was nested in political science. And then it kind of evolved into why do people commit crime or why do people stop committing crime? And so that kind of brought me into Criminology, which is really an interdisciplinary field that combines many different types of sciences, including the heart sciences. So there's a there's a there's a meeting point of neurobiology and neurochemistry and psychology and sociology and anthropology and demography. There's that's that is criminology, um, and so I felt like it was the right fit for me. <clears throat> I was at Loyola for I mean I blew through that program pretty quickly. It was only like 15 months. And um, I started my PhD in criminology off at the University of Southern Mississippi, which is a, which was close to New Orleans. I didn't want to like leave New Orleans entirely, um, and I was only there first semester. It just it didn't really fit. It wasn't a, it wasn't the right fit, um, and I decided to apply for Florida State, um, and I got in. Uh, I was very surprised because it is a very competitive program. Um, and then I went there, and so I've been there since 2013, um, trying to finish up all of the ends of the program, and um, I've been working with uh, the same faculty over that period of time, and uh, yeah, it's been bliss. It's been really good. It's been a really good fit for me. Um, I also hold a couple other graduate accreditations. I have an additional graduate accreditation from Florida State through their emergency planning. So I had that, I got that like one summer. I was just like, I'll get this. Um, so yeah, and I'm gonna do another one this summer. So I'm a bit of a degree collector. I'm doing, the, the one I'm doing I think is gonna be through Michigan State University and it's gonna be another graduate accreditation in urban planning and GIS, which is like, a, GIS is like a data platform where you use maps, you, light, you use maps to layer different points of data. So. Be a little pet project for me. I'm excited. I was interested in hearing more about Matthew's research and work in the field of criminology. What does the academic and research side of the criminal justice field look like? Yeah, I was really lucky um, to start off my um, time at Florida State working with this faculty member. Her name is Dr. Sonia Sinek. Um, so she's at Florida State currently. Um, she's an absolutely brilliant scholar. Um, she so workhorse, she produces so much literature, it's absolutely insane. I got to work with her for about three-ish years, um, and um, so most of the stuff that I worked on with her, of course, was a reflection of her own interests, but I actually developed a, a very strong interest in it as well. Um, so she was on this grant, uh, it was an NIJ grant, um, using this data that had been collected in Iowa and Pennsylvania, two random states, but uh, there's a reason for that, that the host universities were in each respective state. Um, they, they were following adolescents from the first, their first year of middle school all the way through high school, and um, they have all this like, really it's a rich array of information on uh, behavior and uh, health and diet um, family life, and so that data was what we used to publish a lot of the work that we were that was you know that was eventually found its way into academic journals. Um, so some of the stuff we did was on onset of behavior. Um, so like why people, or particularly in adolescent populations, why they begin to you know de I guess you would say deviate from the norm. Um, why, do, why do kids um, get involved in drugs and alcohol? Why do kids behave? Um, 
in ways that, you know, in ways that violate the law? How does that happen? Um, we looked at the role of peers as a powerful social learning link between, uh, between different phases of behavior. It was really interesting, and I think it, it opened up an, a, 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 um, a new pathway for me to explore the role of peers in other, in other domains of life, um, including in adult life. I think a lot of people recognize that peers are a powerful social learning. Uh, they're, so they're a source of socialization. They're quite powerful, especially after you pass a certain age. I mean, most of the behaviors that you emulate come from your peers. Once you kind of graduate from early adolescence to middle adolescence, your parents play a, a, a less important role in kind of molding and shaping you. Um, and so peers become a very important part of the, that discussion on why people behave the way they do. So that's what a lot of my research with her was on. And then in my own isolated uh, pursuits, I have done a lot of work on uh, perceptions of crime and the fear of crime. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they when we have a discussion about this, they, re they come to the realization that there is actually um, something very truthful to the axiom that subjective assessments of crime are more are more powerful driver uh, of, of action let's say at the policy level than than objective measures of crime and because of that I think criminologists and sociologists have taken a deep interest in trying to determine uh, or trying to bridge the gap between the two and try to really flesh out why it is that people believe the things that they believe <clears throat> so I, a lot of my research has been in that, kind of tracking people's opinions of crime and how that shapes uh, their attitude about policy. Um, you know, our work, any, any kind of work that focuses on criminal justice reform is inevitably going to lead to the historical legacy in this country of harsh, punitive criminal justice policy. And we have to ask ourselves, where does that come from? Why, why do we have a system that is set up um, to create, essentially, it, it, it unintentionally or perhaps intentionally creates a criminal class of people. It creates offenders out of people that are out of nowhere. I mean, the, the vast majority of offender, uh, you know, offenders are first-time offenders, but why do they repeat offending? Um, well, it could be something innate within them, or it could be the system that we've created. And from my perspective, at least based on my research, it's really hard for me to divorce the fact that the system plays a very heavy role in kind of shaping behavior. Um, you know, so uh, and that that the system itself is a byproduct of what people believe. So if people feel unsafe, they're going to they're going to they're going to rally behind politicians that want to create policies that somehow rectify that. Whether or not those policies are proven to be effective or not really matters very little. Um, it's a political thing. I think that that's an important part of criminology. The, the practical applied part of criminology is criminal justice. That is the system and the institutions that enforce the law and maintain the law uh, and sanction those that violate the law. And um, I think that a lot of people forget that there is something very political about this discipline more so than a lot of other social science disciplines. You know, a lot of times we don't really talk about psychology from a political perspective. Criminology very much has an applied component to it that is political. You can, you know, your, your opinion of how the police behave or the, your opinion of the way the courts should be structured or the way um, institutions, state, state supervision like incarceration or parole or probation, how those how those procedures should be pursued is very much shaped by your political outlook, and that is in turn shaped by how you perceive the environment around you. You know, do you feel safe? Do you feel threatened? Are you vulnerable? And what are the what are the mechanisms that are in place that can be exercised to, you know, remediate your feeling? You know, if you feel unsafe, you're going to try to find ways to fix that. Whether that's putting yourself behind. Uh, gates in a, in a community or looking from the, you know an answer from law enforcement so that's um, the, a long story long tail and the tail end story of it is 
connecting it all back to my interest in subjective assessments of crime and uh, how people how people connect their own personal fear to the spaces around them. And that's what my dissertation actually is a very is very heavily focused on is, is mapping out those perceptions and looking at how attitudes about crime or uh, you know the potential potential risk from victimization, how that shapes their attitudes about justice, how that shapes their attitudes about the agents of law, so police officers. Um, but yeah. So how does Matthew's dissertation explore these issues of subjective perceptions of safety and justice? I actually started my <clears throat> dissertation on a different topic. I was using the PROSPER data. That's the name of the, the, the data that we that I had been working with with that faculty member, Dr. Sinek. Um, I had started off with the intention of using that data to explore um, a variety of different topics, um, one of them including how uh, accumulated trauma impacts behavior and, and, and like uh, pushes people towards either internalized or externalized coping mechanisms. Humiliated trauma is just a, a, a word to describe things that happen in our lives that are traumatic. Uh, you know, whether that's the death of a family member or a friend, a divorce. Um, but we, we, I was originally looking at it from the lens, through the lens of an adolescent. So what if, what if the, question, the, the research question was, what happens when a particular person, especially in their formative years, is exposed to many traumatic events? And the, what is the cumulative effect of that on their behavior? Um, and it was a big topic, and it's something that I'm still very much interested in, but I kind of shelved it because I really wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that was very near uh, to, to me personally. Um, so I wanted to take my interest in the subjective, you know, versus the objective. That is like perceptions of reality, and uh, and and look at it from the lens of of a particular population, very much like what I had talked about before, but instead of adolescents, um, a particular community. Um, so the dissertation focused on LGBT people um, in general, not specific to New Orleans, but just LGBT people and how they perceive their environment and, and how that connects back to um, their perceptions of justice and their attitudes about the law. And uh, just to pull in peers, since I had talked about that prior, what is the role of peers in that relationship? And um, I'm, at, I'm, at a, I'm at the preliminary results stage, but uh, there's definitely an association between the two. And peers plays a big, play a big role in shaping your, your, um, how you see the world. Your, your friends actually can hand you a pair of rose-colored glasses or, you know, they can take them off. And so you can see the world in very different ways based on the people that you hang out with and um, the, pe the peers that's, that you surround yourself with are very much going to shape your attitudes and beliefs. Whether or not you, you, you see that happening in real time, it's very subconscious. It happens at a very subconscious level. But uh, so I collected all the data uh, here in New Orleans, uh, late 2017. I worked with a consortium of bars, as well as the Tulane School of Public Health, and um, served about almost 500 people. And I did it without any resources, just just, um, just pen, pen and paper. I did it myself. Didn't have any research assistance, so it took a while. Um, and uh, that's what I, that's kind of what my dissertation. Is on now is the data that I collected there. Um, it was, it, it's, it's been incredibly, um, it's been a long journey, but in the writing process, but it's been very uh, illuminating, and I think it's an interesting topic because, in within sociology and criminology, there is a there is a wealth of literature that really explores that that topic that I talked about, sub, the subjective versus the objective, you know, the individual reality and how that shapes attitudes and beliefs about our justice system. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of research on that, but and there's a lot of research that looks at that topic uh, within certain groups of populations, women, uh, African Americans, Hispanics, older, you know, people of uh, elderly age, but there's hardly any literature that really looks at how those relationships that are already established, how they vary among 
sexual orientation and gender minority groups. And this is, a, this is 5% of the population, maybe more, um, at least 5%. Um, that's a notable minority that needs to be covered. And in ac academia, there's always this effort to close gaps in, in knowledge. And so from my perspective, this was a good opportunity for me to provide uh, a bridge. And so I'm excited to disseminate my results because I think that uh, perhaps it's, uh, I'm thinking too highly of what I'm, what I'm doing, but I am very interested in the material that I'm working on and I hope that other people are. So, and I, I'm, my goal is that once this is all done, um, it will provide a, a map for others that, are, that will pursue this type of research in the future. Stay tuned to the All Rise Legal Hour on WHIV-FM. We'll be right back with more from Matthew Westner. Do you have a criminal record? Is it causing you problems in getting housing or employment? An expungement might help you. JAC has a mobile and web application that will help you with an expungement. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. You can also speak with an attorney at one of JAC's expungement workshops at the Orleans Parish Public Defender's Office, located at 2601 Tulane Avenue on the 7th floor. We're there the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. More information can be found at www.jaclouisiana.org. Welcome back to the All Rise Legal Hour on WHIV-FM. Our guest tonight is Matthew Westner, Program Analyst with Justice and Accountability Center. So tonight we've heard a bit from Matthew on his research and interests in the field of criminology, including the role of peers and the way that we develop our beliefs, our perception of crime versus objective reality, and how this perception of crime and safety shapes our behavior, beliefs, and goes to impact criminal justice policy. So given that criminology is a field concerned with finding objective facts around crime and safety and understanding people's beliefs and behaviors as they relate to criminal justice, what is then the role of criminologists in using this expertise to actually influence criminal justice policy and reform? Well, my personal goal, and I, I think part of this is because I was, I was really nursed by faculty members at Florida State that believe that there is a huge deficit in, in our, between our academy and our practitioners. So I'll back up and give an example. In medicine, uh, when you read a medical journal, most of what you're reading there is produ often produced in times by uh, physician groups. They're, they're testing the efficacy of a drug and they're determining its impact. So there is, a, there is a deep connection between the academic end of medicine and the applied end of medicine. And part of that, I think, is because it is, it is nested in the hard sciences. It's much easier to determine the effectiveness of a drug based on you know, the hardline measurements. You know, I, can, I can measure a certain amount of a drug at every time and determine its effectiveness uh, you know, on a group of people. Whereas people measuring, uh, you know, the, the, the attitudes or the belief systems of people is much messier. People in general, and I think this is a problem in the social sciences, people are unpredictable, they're highly variant, and so <laughs> what you measure one day might not be the same the next. There's a lot of measurement error in social sciences. Now that, despite that, I still think that there is a huge deficit that is unexplained between the academy and the applied, the practitioner end. And so in criminology, our academy would be the criminology sciences. That would be the people that pursue uh, the odds, the, end, the ins and outs of, of why people behave the way they do, uh, respective to the law, and whether or not they, they begin, stop, or you know whether, why they get involved in any number of things associated with the law and criminal justice. The applied part would be the people that we see every day on the streets. Those are the, the law enforcement officers, the probation officers, court officials, ju judges. Those are the people that are really making decisions about how the law is applied and how it's enforced. And 
the two are often not connected. Um, and I think that there's a big reason for that historically. I mean, a lot of people that go come into the criminal justice system as an agent are often not going through the same pathways uh, or the same channels, I should say, uh, as the academics are. So, you know, uh, the clinicians. They're going through two different, they're taking two different routes. I think that's changing. A lot of universities now, and a lot of police departments in particular, are requiring degrees before entering the academy. And so now you're seeing a lot of police, uh, police, like here in New Orleans, you have to have, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it's a, you have to have an associate's degree. So because of that, the police officers are now being exposed to the academic end. And they're, they're being taught, the tool, they're being given the tools needed to connect the two. Um, at the same time, I think that there is a, there's a responsibility that academics bear to connect the two. There needs to be a better connect, there needs to be a better effort to bridge university resources, because most, most of the research that's being done here is being done in universities. They are the incubators of most social science research. There are some private nonprofit organizations, JAC being one of them, um, you know, and a lot of other institutes like Brennan, which is associated with uh, New York University, uh, and Figueroa Institute. There are a lot of organizations that do uh, nonprofit work that research um, this type of thing, um, and that's a good thing. But all three bodies, that is nonprofit research organizations, universities, and the practitioners, the law enforcement people, and we all need to connect. There's a, and I find that problematic. Um, and so my goal has always been to produce work that can be disseminated to many different audiences. I don't, I, I, I think that there needs to be a real movement in the academic community to produce work that is more approachable to the layperson. Uh, I mean, academic literature is really hard to read. Um, it's hard to read for somebody that's read it for many, many years. It's, it's, it's very in-depth. It's long-winded. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is a reference to a reference. And so I think that that, for many people that are not in that world, um, is scary. That's very unapproachable. And so, um, like I said, all the research that I've always done uh, has always been with the effort of pursuing policy change. There's, there's real-world application and implication. Um, but I, and I think that I'm, I'm only one person. There are a lot of other researchers that feel the same way about this. Um, but I think there needs to be a movement within our discipline. And um, I think it's happening. I, I think that we're on the precipice of, of such, a, such a connection. At Florida State, we have a lot of scholars that do that, kind, that, do that kind of work, make a very concerted effort to bring in people within the community. So the university I'm at is in Tallahassee, Florida. It's the capital of Florida. And all of the state agencies are in, are in Tallahassee. And so there's been a real... Uh, effort to, to bridge the gap between the, the, the stuff that's coming out of the university, you know, the, the, the stuff that we're producing, you know, the, quantify, the things that we can quantify, the empirical literature, and connecting it back to how it's applied in the real world. Um, there are examples of this. Um, community policing is, is something that came out in the mid-80s, I suppose, it, it, and then it really was applied in a more widespread way throughout the 90s, community era policing is, 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 was a shift in the style of policing and the approach to policing um, that has been very much undergirded by research efforts in the academy. I think that's a good example of connecting the two and showing what works and what doesn't work. Um, we know that currently the, the, pro the profile of the criminal justice system uh, is this. We have two million two plus million people incarcerated in the United States. That's one for every like 160, 170 people. That is insane. Um, that's a rate that exceeds China, it exceeds Iran, it exceeds Russia. All of these countries that we think of, at least geopolitically, as hostile. Uh, yet, we are a country that very much sits on this foundation of habeas corpus and, uh, you know, this, we, we are very much guided by these principles of liberty and freedom. And those things are all true. 
but we also have to we have to we have to introspect about our institutions if we're going to maintain that those values. And I think that the two, that we can't possibly stand on a world stage and make the argument that we are the most free country when we haphazardly and quite extrajudiciously lock up people um, for things that probably could be handled in, in a much different way. So we have two plus million people that are incarcerated, and that's a statistic that, that gets thrown around a lot. But then another statistic that doesn't get thrown around is that there are an additional seven million people that are behind some form of state supervision. So that's parole, probation, um, or you know, house arrest, or in um, halfway homes. Some, some kind of, they're being monitored by the state. So nine-ish million people, that's an incredible number. Um, that exceeds the state population of Louisiana by about double. Um, there are like four million people in the state. So that's twice the number of people in Louisiana. Um, and those are people that are in uh, state facilities, federal facilities, local facilities. Um, and, the, and we're throwing a lot of resources at those, at those at incarcerating all of those people. Um, by state, the, 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 the annual cost to incarcerate somebody varies greatly. But for example, like in California, um, the cost of incarcerating someone in a state facility exceeds the average tuition of a university. Um, and it just, I, I think for anyone that has an eye for reform sees that as uh, preposterous. There, there's, there has to, and especially when, if, if, the, if we're doing this, we expect there to be a goal. If we're going to lock up all these people, the goal would be the elimination of crime. That's at least, that's the, that's, that's the long end goal. You know, we, we can incarcerate ourselves out of crime. This is totally unproven. We have not, we have not reduced crime because crime is, un, is untenable. We can't, can't control it because there's always going to be ways to commit crime and evade the system. There's a lot of crime that occurs that we don't even know about. There's a dark figure of crime that uh, is, un, is unaccounted for. Probably a great deal of it. Um, I think I saw a statistic one time that said that forty percent of all crime occurs in a way that is not even captured or measured. That means it's not reported to the police. So I don't know how true that statistic is, uh, how consistent it is over other studies. But at any rate, I think that our system needs to be designed with best practices in mind. And I think that there has always been an effort to do that, but it's been it's been polluted by politics been polluted by politics for a long time, for many decades. And one of the things that is really exciting about criminal justice reform, and when I say reform, I mean changing the system from its current state, making real changes, not, you know, not trying to kick the can down the road, uh, but, you know, reducing our, our, our addiction to prison, you know, looking for other, op other, other ways especially for like nonviolent offenses, looking for other ways to address those things. Drug, you know, our war on drugs is a great example. There is a real um, reform that we can pursue here. We, for one of the first things that we can do is shift our approach from a criminalization model to a medical model. Uh, a model that was very much used prior to the 1960s. If you were drug addicted, you didn't go to prison. You know, uh, you know, being, being drug addicted is a health problem. It's not a criminal problem in most cases. Most nonviolent offenders uh, that are in in a, in incarcerated state for drugs are not are nonviolent offenders. They are they're people that are using it personally. They're not distributing, but they're they're in a position where they get they get locked up or it's a, it's a, it's a multiple offense type situation, and they find themselves behind bars for many many years. And that in turn creates a, a it, it, it creates a, a, a host of problems in the future. I mean, if you put somebody behind bars for five years for a third strike marijuana charge, uh, eventually that's going to have that's going to create new problems in itself. There's this idea that cr prison has a cr criminogenic effect. That is, it it breeds the very Thing that it's trying to root out or trying to reduce crime, but prison is such a hostile environment. Anyone that's ever been in a prison can immediately identify that it's a very hostile space. It's not a neutral space. It's not. A, it's not a space that fosters goodwill. It's a space that's hostile. It's meant to be hard. At least you know from the American perspective, prison is not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be vacation. Uh, 
Well, you put somebody that really isn't in that so-called life, you know, this is the person that's not, that hasn't, doesn't have a history of violent offenses, and they have to adapt. There has to be some kind of social adaptation that changes people. It very much does. It changes your psychology, it changes your stature, your emotion, your approach to the world. People become very jaded. Um, and so it's no wonder that many people that leave prison after long periods of time reoffend. Because not only um, are they, had they changed, had they had they been forced to change to adapt to a very hostile environment, but then they, we put them out back into the community and we tell them that all of the pathways to success that they previously had are no longer available. Um, get a job, make money, provide for your family. That's no longer available because in most cases, uh, you know, employers are gonna are gonna see that they're gonna see that you you have a background. And, the, and because of, because of uh, you know, the, the concern and the, uh, that an organization may have in hiring somebody that has a, a criminal background, they're going to be scared away. And this, this actually is not a myth. This happens quite frequently. People you know, get out of jail and they look for conventional employment, even, even somewhere as you know, what some people would see as remedial, you know, work in, in restaurants, it's something that where the barrier of entry is very low and they still get denied. They get denied that access. And when you tell people um, that the pathway to success is, you know, strong, gets us an employment and, you know, pr pr provisions for your family, but then you tell them that all the, all the routes to doing that, at least the legal routes, are blocked, people are going to take, you know, are going to take their life into their own hands. So tying it back on the criminal justice reform, I think criminal justice reform looks in many looks like many different things, um, and so I think connecting the we were talking about the connection between uh, the data itself, quantifiable data, and policy. I think that data can data that's collected by you know academic institutions, universities, nonprofits, all of that can be combine it together to really promote policy that is more grounded in, a, in, in, a, in an objectivity, something that we can demonstrate is effective. Uh, we just need politicians and policymakers that are willing to hear this argument, and there are a lot of them. Uh, at the, in the Senate, there are a lot of senators um, on both sides of the aisle that are very receptive to criminal justice reform at the federal level. Um, and I think that's consistent in most states. Um, personally, I, there, I have a lot of ideas about how the system can be reformed, but I would ultimately like to see the system shift entirely from a criminalization model or a retributive model, a model that really is grounded in this, this idea that we, you know, just deserts, you know, you offend, you, you get what's coming to you, to something that's more focused on rehabilitation, a, sh a shift in the, in the model that we're using to kind of provide the foundation for criminal the criminal justice system is really where it begins. And um, I'm hopeful that it will happen. But there is also reason to be cautious. Uh, I'm not sure how much change will occur at the federal level in the next few years. It's probably going to come at the state and local level, which is fine as well because most of the funding comes from the state level so you know it's but it's just going to create a patchwork of, uh, of approaches and so every state will have its own uh, pathway I've used that word a lot but pathway to criminal justice reform So our guest is Matthew Westner, Program Analyst with the Justice and Accountability Center. 
We've heard tonight from Matthew about the importance of bridging the gap between academia and professionals and practitioners in the field of criminal justice. So academics and criminology have a role to play in informing legislators and influencing criminal justice policy and practice. However, legislators and other players in criminal justice, such as DAs and judges, are ultimately accountable to the voters. And as we've heard tonight, the way that people behave and vote is often based on their subjective view of crime and safety, which can be very different than what the reality, the objective reality is. Um, so then what is the role of criminologists in informing the broader public? Yes, this is, this is where I'm getting at too, is that it, it, is, it is not politically popular to tell people that you are going to change the way you approach criminal offenders. Uh, it's just not. Um, there, are, there, there, is a, there is also a literacy gap within the public, and I think our media plays a big role in that. We cannot control private media. We can't control how Hollywood depicts crime, you know, or depicts the response to crime. I mean, people have this idea of how police officers work. Police officers, Police work is incredibly basic. It's really basic. Most police officers will tell you, and I've never been a police officer, but this is coming from other officers, that most of the work they do is incredibly, it's drudging. It's, it's paperwork, 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 paperwork. Even, even field officers, even officers that work on the beat are still having to do a lot of paperwork, or it's a lot of sitting in their vehicle. It's not this like high-intensity drama where you know they're on the scene and they're providing forensic analysis. First of all, those are two different jobs, but they're just not doing that. Um, so our media plays a big role in how we perceive crime. Uh, our news plays a big role in whether or not we think there's a lot of crime happening. The problem with modern news, especially online news, using using social media as a vehicle to get your news, is that it overrepresents everything. It makes it seem like things are happening all the time, when it's really not. We, we, are, we just have a greater access to information. And because of that, things get reported all the time. People think, for example, that one of the things that actually gets talked a lot about is rape. Rape is a real problem in our community. But a lot of people think that rape is up. That's probably not true. It's probably not, it's not true. Rape is occurring most likely, and it, 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 there probably is some disagreement about this, but rape on a widespread scale is probably occurring at the same level as it did in the 1950s. But we didn't have the level of, we didn't have the access to information. We didn't have the spread of information that we had in the 1950s. We just didn't. Things were not as connected. We are a more connected society. And so I can get on my phone and make a report and tweet something immediately, and it is available to the world. Um, that level of interconnectivity really has changed our, the collective psyche. It's, it's, it's attuned us to things that we wouldn't normally see. Uh, the adage, you know, does a tree, you know, does a tree, I think it's, a, does a tree make a sound if no one's around to hear it if it falls in the forest, sort of like that. That's, that's very true. If people don't see it or hear about it, it's not in their, it's not within the scope of their reality. And so the news really, it, it, it messes with our, the internal mechanisms that operate within our head, it makes us think that things are happening in a greater degree than they really are. I think crime is very much this. If you watch local news all the time, if you read the Times-Picayune or the Advocate here in New Orleans, most local news is about crime. It's about the double homicide that occurred in Gentilly. It's about the, you know, it's about the robbery that occurred in Broadmoor or the Grand Theft Auto that occurred on Carrollton, you know, all of these things. Uh, but but is crime happening at a greater degree? Most of the most of the statistics that we have, you know, the stuff that comes from the FBI, Bureau of Justice Statistics, or even our local departments, suggest no. For the most part, crime, violent crime, has never been lower in forty years. Now there are some, there are some, there's some variance in that. There are some cities uh, that some areas of the country that are experiencing an uptick in that. But that's not like we can't. We don't really have a good explanation for why that is. That might be very local. It's a very cultural thing at a very local level, um, and it could also be the way that the institutions there are are approaching the law. Perhaps there was a change in criminal justice, in policing policy that, 
or you know, who knows? there's a there's a many different explanations for that. But no matter what ideological uh, bent you come from, no matter where you are on the political spectrum or ideological spectrum, there's really not a lot of there. There shouldn't be a lot of disagreement about the very objective reality that is crime as an occurrence. Crime is not happening more. We don't have more violent crime. In general, we don't have more property crime. Crime across all metrics is lower over the last 40 years. But yet people feel people feel very that people are very fearful of crime. They feel that crime is up. And that was a very that was a that was a topic of the 2016 election. As somebody that really watched this, it was very it was weird to me to, to see that this, some, this topic, something that had been very popular in the 80s and 90s, when crime was actually up, crime was up in the late 80s and early 90s, it, so it made sense to campaign, approach, you know, a political campaign from a criminal justice reform approach, but, uh, or from a criminal justice approach, but at this point it seems so foreign to me, and so, uh, uh, but you know, people do feel more fearful. And I think it's a large part of it is because of the media. It's there. It's the satur it's the media saturation, their exposure to movies and film and depictions of crime on TV. Um, you know, I mean there's a lot of experience psychological experiments about the, the the chasm between reality and you know your built reality, what you what you choose to see. So what can we do about this disconnect? So um, there needs to be a public campaign. There needs to be a real effort. There needs to be an effort on our local, state, and federal government to educate people. And it needs to happen in schools, too. Uh, educate people on the realities of the law and justice and how law and justice uh, inter you know, intersects with the people. You know? um, I think there is a there's a deficit. There's a literacy deficit. So I think that a, you know, a really a, a bridging the gaps in literacy would be incredibly helpful. And, and eventually, I think that criminal justice will, reform will happen naturally. I think part of it is going to be financial. I don't think that the state is going to be able to provide the apparatus for criminal justice, uh, the system as it currently is, much longer. It's so expensive. And it has a real human toll. The All Rise Legal Show is a project of the nonprofit Justice and Accountability Center of Louisiana. JAC provides legal services, education, and advocacy on criminal justice issues across the state of Louisiana. If you have an idea for a show that is related to criminal justice, we want to hear it. All ideas can be sent to allriseradio at jaclouisiana.org. We're back on the All Rise Legal Hour with Matthew Westner, Program Analyst with the Justice and Accountability Center. So how does Matthew's background in criminology and research in these areas apply to his current role with the Justice and Accountability Center? Um, like I said, my role is uh, as the pro well, my official title is Programs Analyst, but really what that means is I'm a researcher, at, um, at, you know, when you really peel back all the layers, and um, we have programming within our organization um, that's meant to remediate the effects of the criminal justice system. When people come out, they're post-incarceration, there are certain realities that they're faced with that are often not told to them. There are collateral consequences of incarceration, and one of them is your record. Um, your record is public. If you if you if you offend, if you are incarcerated, people can look that up if they're interested. Um, and because of that, many people are prevent prevent. Like I mentioned earlier, they're prevented the 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 opportunities needed to really reestablish themselves um, from being incarcerated. That is a disruption in your life to be incarcerated, and so um, there needs to be. There needs to be options for you to pursue once you're out of, you know, out of jail or prison um, that allow you to kind of get back on your feet. So at JAC, one of the things that, that um, we see as uh, kind of 
fixing the current problem, the current deficit, is through expungements. Now, expungements are a legal process that allows a person in the public um, to conceal their record from the, the from the view of the public, the wider public. Uh, now, it's still you know it's still visible to certain uh, certain organizations and certain groups of people, but the, it's it's concealed from the public, and that actually has a can have a real impact on providing the options that are needed to reinstate, you know, to reestablish some sort of normalcy post-incarceration. Um, so somebody that's looking for a job and, and, and stable housing and needs all of that would benefit greatly if they have a thick criminal background, would benefit greatly from an expungement. So we have a we have the very generous support of external organizations that have facilitated our program that provides um, the resources and tools that people need to to appeal to that process, you know, to get people started on clearing their record, their public record. Um, there's also a very, there's another component to this that um, I think often gets missed is that this process, this legal process is very prohibitive. It's very expensive and oftentimes many of the people that are coming out of prison have very few resources available to them, financial resources. Um, and so getting a you know getting you know getting yourself that clean record is, is really difficult especially if you're living month to month and you're on a very fixed income in Louisiana the cost exceeds five hundred dollars it's like five hundred and fifty bucks to you know to, to pursue this and so there are many people that get discouraged from you know the legal process because they, they can't afford it. And so JAC can be a mediator between the individual and the court by kind of covering those costs. So the program that we're currently operating um, is to determine the effectiveness of the that barrier, removing that barrier. What it what it, the the research question is: What happens when we remove the prohibitive barriers to expungement? How does that impact people's long-term life trajectories? Um, are you know are these people better off now? I mean, from a on the face of it, we would want to say yes, but we need to quantify this. We want to provide some kind of support, empirical support for all of this. And so that's what I'm currently doing. Um, we're also going to be working on another program through the Reentry Court, um, which is, is a special program that's offered to certain groups of um, individuals that are incarcerated, uh, persons that are incarcerated, um, that gives them a, a an alternative pathway to longer prison sentences. So um, both programs are going to track people over time to determine how the intervention, the intervention being, um, you know, the removal of a barrier, how does that impact their employment prospects, their housing prospects, um, you know, how does that improve their morale? I mean, because a criminal record is incredibly debilitating, even not even from a social and community perspective, but also just from an individual personal perspective. It's the, it's a weight that you have to carry with you. And so uh, I, I am tracking the effectiveness of those programs over time and hoping that there will be something that we can provide to policymakers to demonstrate this pro these programs can come out of a nonprofit and a, and a, you know, a private provisional sphere and be um, approach from a more public sphere, that is, you know, getting public money to fund these types of programs. And, you know, we would like to see a statewide program that's offered to people, especially people that are, that don't have the funds to cover those uh, expungements in particular. Uh, we'd like to see the state fund that, you know, so that people that are indigent, basically poor people, um, or I should say low income people that don't have access to the necessary financial resources would be able to at least apply or be considered for um, for a fee waiver. And there are certain fee waivers in Louisiana that already exist, but we would like to see it on a much larger scale, especially for nonviolent offenders and um, you know, for arrest records and all that. So that's where I'm at right now. And uh, we're kind of knee deep in the, in the expungement program currently. And hopefully over the next year, we'll be able to demonstrate some kind of program efficacy. This brings us to the final question of the night. 
despite working in criminology and with organizations that work on criminal justice issues, which can often be very frustrating, difficult, and heavy, where does Matthew find joy? Oh, ah, well, of course, my friends and family. That's such a cliche response, but it's true. Um, I think, as for those that know me, I'm very, I am just naturally effervescent and uh, extroverted. It's really something that I can't control. Um, but I, I do take great joy in being around the people that I love and the people um, that I, I'm very close to. Um, New Orleans is a great place to live. It's hard not to smile when you're here. Um, because the, the entire community just, there is a real feeling in the air that people love living here. And that's something that you can't recreate in a lot of places. And because of that, the, there is a real sense of community here that I don't think that I've observed in many other places. It's the perfect, it's the perfect environment. And I'll go back to criminal justice world. It's the perfect environment for ch to create change, lasting change that has a real impact on people's lives. Um, I know we just had that, I don't know, I'm going to botch this French word, but it's like that joy vivre, whatever, I don't know the word, I'm sure the linguist will correct me, but um, it's just kind of carefree spirit, um, so I, uh, I find a lot of joy in that, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's hard not to be happy when you have the pe people around you that are supportive and loving, but that is cliche, nevertheless. I also find a lot of joy in reading. <laughs> so, uh, learning about new things. I think I'm a curious mind, so always on the edge of finding something new to to learn about. So, cool. and travel. Never lose your sense of adventure. You can learn more about Matthew's work with JAC at jaclouisiana.org. It's been another episode of the All Rise Legal Hour. We'll see you again two weeks from tonight. It's been a good day and a good evening, and so good night. Beautiful things of wine scene. Yes, yes. Shaman Verb, aquatic scholar, man. We're going to talk about all the things good in life. Okay. Hold your head, it's off. Imagine early morning yawning flapjacks on sizzle, girly naked with the aprons. Music for the show has been provided by Dalla Bin, produced by DJ Ian Head, with additional production from Verb Math from the album Styles You Can't Afford. All Rise Radio Branding by Hero Farm, a marketing and public relations agency with a simple philosophy. Do great work for good people. The All Rise Legal Hour by the Justice and Accountability Center of Louisiana creates discussions with local attorneys, advocates, and impacted community members about all things criminal justice. Think the criminal justice system has a limited impact on those who are convicted? Think again. Affordable housing, sustainable employment, civic engagement, recidivism, community wealth, sustainable cities, supportive families, and parental engagement with children. All of these things and more are impacted by the criminal justice system. This system perpetuates poverty in our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, and our country. The All Rise Legal Hour explores how intertwined these issues can become and discusses solutions members of our community are implementing. You have been listening to the All Rise Legal Hour on WHIV LP in New Orleans, 102.3 FM. WHIV is radio programming dedicated to human rights, social justice, and public health. Stream us live online at whivfm.org. End all wars. Verb approach the mic clutch tight and beat right in Hooking up the beats and we do it all night Honey in the front row thick and grinning at me like You can get it till it come daylight Word? Your new man come through just to meet your son Call the little man sir, respect him from jump Next thing they shooting ball, getting his homework done You thinking yo, I got to keep this one That's a good brother right there Walk into the store, hold open the front door Step aside, let the queen walk in just before Grab your stuff, head to the counter And the cashier says, thank that lady, your stuff is paid for What? It's your first child together, she's screaming, pushing it out But all you see is God's image while she cussing you out It's the next generation, this what life is about Where the JMR's the journey is just I mean, it's all good, and it's be like tripping, man. Look, man, I ain't even fading it, yo. No worries. The world is too good. It's like 
We all get bogged down, mad, frowns and twisted. Small, middle, or large, the joys of life can't be missed, kid. Gather up the moments that's bringing you peace. Whether it's just a sunny morning or some raw-ass beats. Word. A fresh PJ with a cold glass of milk. Or the number of a girl that Serena-type build. Damn. It might pass, but so does pain. Move on to the next. Right. Tuck some aside when you're cashing your check. Learn to play guitar or get a fucking lap dance. Roll the sticky ick in a blunt. Spend the weekend in France. Scope out the honeys, filling out the tight pants. And tell your folks you love them whenever you get the chance. And all of y'all out there, you need to quit front and get your silly ass up and dance. Yeah, it don't stop. Beautiful face